Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Longest Night, a Game of Thrones show, in conjunction with our friends at the Narth subreddit and at the Podbreed network. My name is Rob, and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie, and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you want to, uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT, that is at LongestNightGOT. And we're also under the same name on Etsy, uh, where you can get some pin badges. And I'll leave a link to both of those play, uh, both of those pages, in the show notes. Our title music, as always, was provided by Edward Thomas, who's my good friend. And you can find all of his available work in the description. Uh, okay, time for the penultimate episode of season five. <laughs> This week, we are going to be discussing Season 5, Episode 9 of Game of Thrones, entitled The Dance of Dragons. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and directed by David Nutter, and it was first broadcast on the 7th of June, 2015, to an audience of 7.14 million people. Lizzie, what do we make of Season 5, Episode 9? I think it's a mostly solid episode. Initially, I think I compared it negatively to previous episode nines because it didn't have, well, it didn't have a shocking closing moment, you know, like Baylor or Reigns of Castamere, nor did it have that single location focus that Blackwater or Watchers on the Wall had. And it also did feel a little bit like the ending scenes were somewhat overshadowed by the fact that Stannis had just sacrificed his own daughter. But... I mean, also, there's some kind of, there's some small pacing issues, but we'll get into that. But it does feel like we get some clear points of no return for Stannis, Arya, and Daenerys in particular, as well as proving that, you know, you can do a horrifying scene like the bur- like the, the burning, sorry, mm. and it can be both effective and sort of justified in the show's universe, as depressing as those justifications may be. Yeah, um, I totally agree that there is a different kind of feel to this penultimate episode compared to other ones Mm. that we've had. It feels like they have organised season five very differently to previous seasons of the show, which is why I think that Hard Home is is such a big surprise at the end of last week. Because that's that's the kind of episode they'd normally reserve for the ninth episode of the season, but the way that the blocks Mm -hmm. have all fallen together means that we get this kind of episode nine where you get decisive forward steps to storylines that have been, you know, that we've been following, but they're not that central to the the plot. Um, I think that's maybe a condition of season five in general, which is that season five does not have, I think we said this last week, season five doesn't really have a central place that you always want mm. to get back to like in season one it's definitely king's landing with ned in season two it's arguably uh king's landing because Tyrion's running rings around everyone and stannis's invasion is coming with season three it's probably following rob's uh well initially his success but then obviously the 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 downfall of rob stark and then Mm -hmm. with season four it's probably king's landing again whereas with season five maybe castle black but like i was i was gonna say castle black yeah maybe but like i don't know if that's any more important than what's been you know i I don't think i've been eager to get back to castle black in ways that i've 
been eager to get to King's Landing in previous seasons before. So where penultimate episodes have previously been used to, you know, bring to an end long-running central storylines like Ned Stark being beheaded in episode 9 of season 1, or the Battle of Blackwater in season 2, or the Red Wedding in season 3, or the Battle for Castle Black in season 4. This, it's it still provides, you know, big forward steps, but I wouldn't say that Stannis and Daenerys are, like, the two main characters of the season. Um no. No, but I do. I do love this episode a lot. I think that the moment, as you said, the moment with Shireen is horrendous. I think I find it mm-hmm. harder to watch than the Red Wedding. It gets talked yeah, about no, less. I, I, could, I could see that. Um, there's, uh, like I, I think I said to you afterwards, there's, o- there's only one bit in the Red Wedding that I find very hard to watch, but the rest is, you know, it's it's cutting people's throats. How often do we see that in Game of Thrones? <laughs> it's, it's every week. Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah, burning burning your own daughter to death and also kind of having an excuse for it like fucking hell yeah i'm surprised that it doesn't end the episode but daenerys yeah me too but daenerys riding a dragon for the first time after loads of amazing excellent emotional beats in that stadium i can see why they went they put that top billing i i can see why they they thought daenerys riding a dragon was more important than stannis burning his daughter I, I can see why they did that. So maybe less... It's, it's not one of my favourite episode nines, but I think it's still a really moving and intense and really horrific episode. Um, that There's loads to talk about with this one. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and I think this is where also, Lizzie, you'll start to um, experience it in real time in the way that I did, because this is mm-hmm. this point of the show. We're very close to the point of the show where I start to experience all of this in real time. And it'll be interesting Amazing. to see if your reactions are now the same as me, week by week, as to what mine were in 2015. <laughs> Amazing. But before all the dragon flying and daughter burning business, um, we've got to get to <laughs> Bravos first. That was the eye to eye on this matter. Did you know that at one point Nagor III tried to outlaw it in the Seven Kingdoms? Wanted to arrest anyone caught charging interest and cut off both their hands. Most unfortunate for the Glovers. If a man charges no interest on a loan, then he has nothing to gain and everything to lose, so why chance it? Whereas the promise of reward makes a man willing to gamble. We are not gamblers here at the Iron Bank, Lord Tyrell. You are the world's best gamblers. And all those bets you won built this. In Bravos this week, Arya, who is still posing as Lana the oyster seller, continues her mission to poison the insurance salesman, who we know as the Thin Man now. But before she can poison him, she notices the arrival of Mace Tyrell and Merin Trant to Bravos. And after Mace Tyrell gets to know Tycho Nestoris, uh, Arya abandons her mission to poison the Thin Man and instead tracks Merin Trant to a brothel where we discover his attraction to prepubescent girls, and Aya then lies to Jacken about how her day went and asks if she can try to poison the Thin Man again tomorrow. Um, there's some more good stuff in Bravos this week. I feel like it's not as um, visually or in terms of editing, it's not as interesting as last week, but it feels like there are actual developments now going on with yeah. Arya. We, we've waited a, a, a while for stuff to really take off in Bravos, but it feels like the last two or three weeks have uh, kicked things up a notch. Yeah, definitely. It feels like this week, 
because last week felt like, oh wow, Ari, she's really taking it in a stride. She's becoming nobody. And this week, it's very much like, yeah, you're still Arya because you know you hate this person, and it's like, it's like having bait dangled in front of her. It's like, come on, you can take it. You can take it. You know where you left that pointy stick. You know. I was just so thinking the, to myself, needle still in the rock. Yes, that's it. So and I've gone yeah. From, I've gone from thinking, like, you know, earlier in the season, it was sort of thinking, oh, God, I can't wait until she gets that sword back, to, oh, God, I like, get that sword back now. Get in that room. Save that young woman. Like, fucking hell. Merrin Tran. Of, ugh. Yeah. Um, the only thing, the only down point of this storyline is that mm. even without hindsight, I think if you're generally a fan of tv and you like to think about how tv works characters don't get made pedophiles to be rehabilitated and last very long do you know what i mean no it's um yeah yeah, yeah. so i think the bravo stuff is great um this week but that stuff i think it's a bit strong <laughs> to be honest i, it's th- a, I know yeah. what you mean it's a yeah. little it's a little bit on the nose and i yeah. think you know, you maybe could have done without that because we, like like I say, we know Arya doesn't like Merrin Tran and it's in her best interest to make sure that he doesn't find her first. Yes. Um, so, because obviously there are loads of little things in this episode of Merrin Tran sort of looking at Arya through a crowd and sort of half recognising her and then just at the point where he thinks, oh, I, something just stops him or cuts him off. Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, there is some nice tension in that. And just the fact that Arya's, like, stalking them around Bravos and trying to hide, and the fact that she's now lied to Jacken, and the fact that Jacken kind of believes her, and that she's playing the game of faces a little better, that that sort of thing. You know, she's learning how to move around Jacken and pretend to be someone that she's not, and pretend how to be no one so that she can take her name off her list. It's like her list suddenly comes roaring back into the story. Yeah, it's like um, yeah. Metal Gear Aria or something. <laughs> I, I know you were a fan of um, Mace Tyrell earlier in the scene as, as well. Oh, with, um... God, he's so funny in this. <laughs> he really is brilliant. I think that the, the little moment that seals it for me is the bit where he references a Magor the Third. <laughs> because Magor the Third doesn't exist. That there was never a Magor yeah. the Third. Um, Ro- mm-hmm. Roger Ashton Griffiths, who plays him, I think he has this amazing ability to just make him seem so pompous and sure of himself without any justification, and like he just looks like a complete buffoon. So when he's on about Magor the Third outlawing usury, he's talking out of his ass because yeah, absolutely, there was one Magor Targaryen king, and he was known as Magor the Cruel, and his reign was so short and such a disaster that no child thereafter was ever called Magor ever again. <laughs> it, it's a bit like, you know, you wouldn't call your child Adolf these days. Like, it, it, it was, you know, it, it's that yeah, sort of yeah. thing. You, you, you will never get another Adolf Hitler in history because the name is tainted. And so <laughs> it's kind of like this with Magor, where like he wrought so much destruction and caused so much death in the Seven Kingdoms 200 years ago, that there is no Magor. So they would never be a Magor Third. And I just love this little detail they've put in where he's like, he's so sure of himself that not only was there a Magor Second, <laughs> there was a Magor Third, and that he, I, I'm so knowledgeable <laughs> of the Seven Kingdoms history and all this. And it's like, bloody hell. Um, he's yeah. so funny. And, yeah. and that and like offering alcohol to someone who's teetotal, but it kind of suggests that... <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> he, he's just been drinking himself silly on the boat here, and Marin Tran's just like, I'm fucking sick of this guy. But yeah, I'd take Mace Tyrell over Marin Tran any day. Oh, God, yeah, especially if he, uh, he and he sings quite nicely as well. Um, yeah, he has such a, a lovely singing voice, and it's not like winner of the week material for Mace Tyrell, but. No, you know, it's, you you appreciate that comic relief in an episode like this. God, yeah. And the thing is, as well, like the Bravo stuff this season has just been so serious. It really and has, hasn't it? I think that, and it is, you know, clearly they're going to go somewhere with it next week that's obviously not going to be hilarious. And I think it's just nice to have this injection of humour for a second. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like last week as well because we were we were talking about how Bravos this season has been it's all been like grey and no sunlight and all the same people and all these pallid grey faces who mm. look like they're on the verge of death. And like when you go back into the outside world, it's like a sigh of relief. Like, mm. oh my god, there's people here. There's like a, a thriving world outside these doors. Mm. Um and Mace Tyrell is part of that. I I you know, I haven't been his biggest fan, but I, I really like seeing him here. It was a failure. It wasn't. I went to save them, I failed. He didn't fail him. Or him. Or her. Every one of them is alive because of you and no one else. I don't think that fact's lost on them. You have a good heart, Jon Snow. It'll get us all killed. At Castle Black, Jon, Tormund and Ed arrive back at the fortress and they wait for Sir Alistair to open the gates and allow them into the castle uh, with all the wildlings. Jon believes that his mission was a failure, but Sam points out to him that he still saved thousands of wildlings from the Army of the Dead. Uh, John is aware that many Night's Watch brothers are unhappy with his decision to allow the wildlings south of the wall, and Thorne warns him that his compassion will probably get them all killed. So, it's a short scene in Castle Black this week, but I think there's a lot of, like last week, there's a lot of meaningful silences and lots of meaningful glances without much being spoken. Yeah, like, admittedly, I don't have much on this, but... No, neither do I. There is... There's, there's kind of hints at the um you know the the inner politics of Castle Black and mm. yeah it's it's one of those things it's like you've you've saved hundreds of thousands of people but at what cost you know yeah definitely um I think that you get a lot of that in the glances where the the Night's Watch are looking up at one one and it's like bloody hell like they're sort of looking at these wildlings coming through and it's like bloody wildlings and then a giant comes through and it's like oh I just keep my mouth shut. I'm not saying mm-hmm. nothing. And then you have yeah, yeah. the uh, the pained expression on John's face when he looks up at Ollie and Ollie sort of looks at him like, well, you've let me down here, John. You know, I was I was looking up to you about a season ago, but then you just had to go and make friends with the bloody wildlings, didn't you? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah. going back to the giant effect, seeing the giant at Castle Black, and Castle Black already feels quite small. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> buddy, where are you going to sleep? You know, <laughs> you, you try getting up those stairs with those size... 34 feet you know <laughs> and the rest <laughs> yeah yeah i do think that um 
the the snow. It, I just love the way snow creeps into this season very slowly. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think you know this this winter is coming sort of thing that just hangs over the whole episode. Um, again, it's the same in the north um, outside Winterfell, where again it's this. I think this is why a lot of people see. I mean, not just because of the content of the story, but season five is one of the bleakest seasons of Game of Thrones because, as I was saying, like mm. there's a lot of people dying and being yeah. hacked to bits yep. and stuff like that. But it's always against really muted color palettes and lots of white and gray and lots of snow and lots of miserable weather. And mm. it's this, it's, it's like a funny pathetic fallacy, I guess, with um, with the weather in the background and it really sets the tone. And it's this idea that, with winter in Game of Thrones, it's not just that there's a season coming, it's that there's something dangerous coming with the season. And mm. even as you watch all of these petty political glances and, and sort of and disgruntled Night's Watch brothers all glaring at each other about the wildlings coming south of the wall, John's sort of there thinking like, Jesus, and I've got the fucking White Walkers to deal with one day as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like a... Um... A cold war, figuratively and literally. Yeah. <laughs> One more thing. My brother was named to the small council before his death. Your father understood the importance of keeping Dorne in the fold. With Oberyn gone, Tristane will take his place on the small council. You have my word. The word of a king's slave. No wonder you can't stand. You have no spine. You are mother to four of my nieces, girls I love very much. For their sake, I hope you live a long and happy life. Speak to me that way again, and you won't. In Dawn, Jamie is brought before Prince Duran to explain his mission uh, to rescue Marcella, and over the course of the conversation, Doran realises that Ilaria Sand was behind the threat on Marcella's life, and to avoid an escalation that might lead to a war, uh, Doran grants Jamie and Bronze freedom and says that Marcella can return to King's Landing with Prince Tristane. And after that, Ilaria is made to swear fealty to Prince Doran and later apologizes to Jamie for the hostilities that we've seen between them this season. Um, the, the stuff in Dawn is okay this week. I think it's, you know, like, I think I can talk to you a little bit more about the general opinion of the showrunners and the writers yeah. these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, with regards to what they wanted to do with Dawn and what their intentions were and what ended up happening. And so they wanted to bring Dawn in somehow because mm-hmm. it was it was the one remaining kingdom that we'd not visited in person. We'd seen characters come from Dawn, but they wanted Prince Oberyn Martell's death to have a bit of a ripple effect. Um, and so... They wanted to go to Dawn, and then they were looking yeah. round for characters to send there, and they were thinking, well, Jamie's not got a lot of book material at the moment, so maybe we could send him there, and Bronn's not got a lot of book material at the moment, so maybe we can send him as well. We can recover the, the, the duo that was going on in season four, where they were, you know, they were training and barbing with each other. And so we'll send them there because the audience like them. And so we can establish a new location with characters that people already are aware of. The The path in the books is a little different where the Dawn storyline is kind of introduced separately to the rest of the uh, rest of the plot. Uh, there are lots of new characters and lots of new names to learn. 
all of a sudden. Um, and I think in a book, I think that that is more than achievable and you can do it very mm. successfully. Whereas I think season five, it's already patient enough and it's already Absolutely. had to reintroduce yeah. a lot of things, even with characters and storylines that we're already sort of aware of. And I think yeah. their idea with it was that they could introduce the location and a couple of the characters, but build a storyline in that was sort of one of their own because they wanted to expand to Dawn, but they, they sort of say these days that like they, they're generally happy with it, but like they had issues filming and they were sort of saying like, it, it's it they were saying it's a lesson in how much they could expand the show and it was a lesson yeah. in yeah. how how far you can really stretch a story until one of the storylines isn't as successful as the rest and like i generally like dawn i think that it gets a pretty it, it, dawn is quite infamous amongst the show's fans for being like a bad storyline but i don't think it's a bad storyline by any means i think in isolation from the books i think if you just sort of take the books out of it it's just a game of thrones tv show in isolation uh you know the books don't exist it's just the show i think it's fine like it's just it serves a purpose it keeps bron and jamie together it's it opens up the last seven it opens up the last of the seven kingdoms in the show that we've not visited yet like that you know it's all fine It, it it all makes sense it's just that it, mm, around the yeah. middle, it all gets a bit muddled and there's that scene, the, the fight scene, which is a bit up and down. And then I think when you come back to it in a really strong episode like this one, it's the weakest mm-hmm. bit of it for me. I, I don't know about you. Cons- yeah, consistently for me, it's been the weakest bit in you know in any episode this season. Yeah. And like you, I think it's fine, but... This is a show where, like, we know the heights this show can reach, and it, it begs the question, is fine good enough? Hmm. I, I don't think it is. I think, like, I, I do agree that you, you obviously want to keep Jamie and Brom busy because they're fan favourites, and you do also want some pushback from Dawn after what happened with Oberyn, but... This, you know, all this build-up with Ilaria hating the Lannisters' guts and wanting revenge, it feels like a bit of a poochie going back to his home planet moment where the writers have decided that the current arc doesn't really have a satisfying ending in sight, so the best option is to just kind of back out and hope that the next turn will lead to something more substantial. Yeah, um... I will. I think there's some questions that might need to be answered at a later date on this one because obviously there is another no, episode fine, to yeah. go. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think that it's trying to give a bit more dimension to characters like Elaria and because obviously I think as well in season four they fell in love with Indira Varma, the actress who plays Elaria, and like I think she's mm. great, and I think oh that, yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, You know, there really is nothing wrong with anybody's performances in this. I just think that, like, when you go to Dawn, it's a bit like, okay, like, you know, thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. Like, it's fine. And, like, you know, I, I don't find it offensive or anything like that. I don't find it an affront. Like, whenever Dawn shows up, it's like, yeah, you know, pretty good. I like the scene where she um, has to bow to Doran in this and everyone's visibly very angry and upset with each other. And it's very complicated and messy but it just kind of you know it has to get done I, I like the the reluctance of everybody in that scene to be doing what they're doing um i think it's interesting that we have 
a lord and a, a king in in or a prince really prince Duran in this show a leader of a kingdom who is generally pacifistic doesn't mm. want to get involved with all the nonsense of the seven kingdoms um dawn like you know throughout the history of westeros has always kind of stayed out or has tried to stay out of the main politics mm-hmm. of the seven kingdoms and yeah, has always yeah. tried to remain a bit distant and has always tried to be a valuable player but not go for the iron throne and little things like that i think you know they they, they, they you know they, they tried and it mostly works but i think that in a generally slower season i think that this is yeah like they said maybe a lesson in how much you can really expand a story before the wheels start to come off a little bit and you have to sort of maybe narrow it down and not go there again or do something differently next time or, you know, put put it to the focus group and see what they say or react to what the audience are saying. There's more to come with production stuff and Dawn mm. in the background um, that we'll talk about um, in future episodes where apparently plans changed. It's something that the writers themselves, they look back on and, you know, they're proud of it. They're proud of everything that they did. But I think that this is one moment where the writers have sort of happily said, yeah, didn't quite manage to pull that one off in the way that we wanted to. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And I suppose it doesn't help that this is kind of a half-baked point. So, you know, please excuse me if I go off into a tangent here. But I feel like in these scenes, they don't really have, you know, those sort of head-to-head characters you get. Like, you can put them in a scene with anybody and they'll produce gold, like Tyrion, Tywin, Cersei, the, the people yeah. I'm thinking. There's nobody that, um, you know, uh, Lady Olena as well. Um, you put them in a room with somebody and they can just, it can just be a conversation. It's like, wow, that scene was electric. And you don't, like, I've never really thought of Jamie as one of those characters, mm. nor have I thought of Bronn as that. Bronze kind of, he's, you know, he's dry, he's witty, but he's not, like, I don't know, someone of cutting wit. And, mm. and yeah, like you say, Doran's a pacifist, and Ilaria is, you know, she's she's understandably frustrated about the death of her lover. And, yeah, there's just nothing, there's, there's no one thing that really elevates these scenes, and so it just feels a lot flatter than it actually is. Yeah, but I think it's worth it to see get see Bron get punched in the nose. Yeah, that was all right. <laughs> <laughs> he had it coming. No, you can't do this, Father. Where are you? Please, let me see my father. Father, where are you? Don't let him do this. Please let go. <laughs> let me see my father. Where are you, please? It's what the Lord wants. No, please. It's a good let thing. Go. Hear us now, my lord. For you we offer up this girl. That you may cleanse her with your fire, and that its light may lead our way. In the north, Ramsay's 20 good men infiltrate Stannis' camp and set fire to the supplies. Davos suggests retreating to Castle Black, but Stannis refuses, sending Davos to Castle Black alone instead. Before he leaves, Davos visits Shireen and gives her a wooden little wooden stag as a gift. Uh, once Davos is gone, Stannis brings Shireen to Melisandre, who plans to sacrifice her to the Lord of Light, and thus grant Stannis's army passage through the snow. As Shireen's pyre begins to burn, uh, Selyse has a change of heart and tries to rescue her, but Stannis's troops hold her down. 
And as Stannis looks away, Shireen burns to death. Uh, oh, wow. Um, this stuff, I still find it very hard to watch. I just think this is just like, oh, I, 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 it, like when I'm yeah. sat there in my yeah. head, I'm thinking, Stannis, what have you done? Like, <laughs> it, it is hard to watch. We were just starting to like you. <laughs> and that's the that's the point. It is supposed to be hard to watch, but. Yeah, like, and like I've said, I, there's people I know, and you know, reading Sarah Hughes' review, like I do every week, she said, you know, she she found this impossible to watch, and this might have been like a you know a jumping off point for her. I thought this was, I thought it was horrible, but I thought it was, it was great. Like it was really powerful stuff, and one of the most haunting things of all is that you can absolutely see this situation from Stannis' point of view. Like, the way things are, continuing to Winterfell would almost certainly mean widespread death, and going back to Castle Black would almost certainly mean widespread death. You're in the middle of no man's land, and there's no guarantee that sacrificing Shireen will work either, but Stannis knows full well that this gamble is his only option. And, you know, we've discussed earlier in the season about how he's how he's running out of time to write his own history and not be defined as the king who ran away. And it's certainly not much better to be remembered as the king who froze to death. And it's, it's increasingly looking like death is a probability rather than a possibility for most of the people in this camp. You know, in this scene, Stannis himself looks about 20 years older. Like, credit to the makeup team. And obviously, Celise, like, she's stick thin and she's clearly so weak that she can barely stand up or cry out as she watches her only daughter being burned alive. So it's like Stannis may have made the right choice, but again, at what cost? Well, it is interesting that you love this decision because I love this decision and I'm going to talk about this, Mm -hmm. my own opinion, before I get into... The reaction to this uh, when it happened. So, yeah, Ramsey's twenty good men have done their job. Um, positive Stannis has evaporated very quickly. He just gets rid of Davos. Like the any kind of brotherly camaraderie that was developing between them. Pff, fuck that. Well, just get out that, of my way. That's, like that's the other thing as well. Like if um, you know if Davos was there and he said this is happening, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have any of it. Like he he knows that Davos because he's the he's kind of Stannis's conscience, and he'd say, "Stannis, are you fucking mad? No, you're not burning your daughter, you freak!" Like, so obviously he had to get him out of the way because he thought if this if this gamble is going to work, I can't have anybody in my ear telling me that this isn't the right way to go. Yeah, I think that there is um, it's it's a massive trolley problem. For Stannis, it's mm. just that his daughter is on one of the tracks, and yeah, I think that in the end, Stannis pulls the lever, and it's yep. the way the thing that I find so excruciating about this beyond Shireen's uh, screaming. Fair play to um, Kerry Ingram, the actress who yeah balls her chest out with that. That's absolutely the last one. Always gets me the one that's really high pitched and then just fades away. Like, it doesn't yeah, get cut off, it else. just slowly fades out, like they've just slightly turned the volume down. That's But the, the bit beforehand, mm-hmm. where Celise and Stannis are talking to each other, trying to justify what they're doing, and 
Yeah. Neither yeah. of them can really arrive at a point. It's like, it's good because the Lord of Light wants us to do this. Um, we have no other option. Uh, anyway... Um, let's just stand and watch, shall we? And like, and then even like Selyse's attempts to try and go and rescue her, she doesn't really fight back against the soldiers that have pinned her down. No, because she's too weak to. Yeah, it's like think about it. These they presumably haven't eaten for about a week. Yeah, sometimes and the world none of them are sleeping. Is what stands yeah, justifies it as basically yeah. freezing to death. It's like um. I kind of spotted a little bit of a parallel to, I think it's in season two, you know, where Stannis looks into the fire and there's that expression of just like absolute joy, like he's just seen his future and it's amazing and he's the king. And him looking into the fire here and he's the most miserable man on earth because he realises that, yeah, it's all come crumbling down and this is his, his last chance. And yeah, well, if he even if he does win, then... Is is it worth it? Yeah, it's um, the it's. I think that's it, really. That Stannis ends up backing himself into a corner by saying that the choice is no choice at all. It's like he's trying to absolve himself of yeah, this yeah. in a way. And I think, yeah, after this, we're gonna have to wait and see whether any kind of victory at Winterfell. Like, is he gonna be known as the king who burns his daughter alive now? Exactly. And yeah. Who would want to follow that guy? Like, you know, no. Westeros has got a long history of kings who burned people alive. Mm. And I don't think that they'd want another one, you know? like, And even some of Stannis' own men are looking at this like, Jesus, like, what are the random people in Westeros going to think if Stannis rocks up and it's like, by the way, my daughter died. Exactly. Um, I mean, I'm sure they could set a narrative, like, you know, they could lie and say that she was killed some other way, but, oh, Jesus. But, yeah, when this happened, um, so a lot of people who were into, like, really into the, like, in the books and stuff like that, and obviously, at this point with Stannis, we're, we're past his book content. Mm-hmm. Um. And so when this happened in the show, at the time, this was a show original decision. And a lot of people were not happy with this decision because they right, thought okay. that Stannis is a different kind of character in the books to the show. Whereas in the show, I mm-hmm. think he can be quite hard to relate to. Um, yeah. Whereas yeah, book yeah. readers have never had that trouble. Book readers have always really related to Stannis, and the show's adaptation of Stannis has always been a bit of a point of contention in the fan base. And when yeah. it got to this point, it really reached boiling point, and a lot of people who were who were very much into the books, but were maybe losing a little bit of faith in the show by this point, they do consider this like a point on the map where things start to go wrong or like you know things start to you know they start mishandling characters and stuff like that and to that i would say that the show version of stannis is different to the book version of stannis and the show and the books are two different pieces of art and so as much as they're interconnected they have different ideas and does this fit with something that stannis would do in the show i believe so um and Mm -hmm. so I don't really have any complaints and I don't really understand the complaints either. Um, but now, Lizzie, I can start to speak to you about things that, again, they're talking about like um, experiencing things in real time and sort of learning things as I learned them on a week by week basis. This is one of three moments where in 2013, 
David Benioff and Dan Weiss, they sat down with George R. R. Martin in a hotel room in Santa Fe in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And they said, listen, George, we're probably going to overtake your books and we've probably got our own ideas with it. Could you give us an outline of how you see it, the story going from this point? And they were in there for four hours or something. They spent a whole afternoon together going through various things and bullet points and lists and things. And when they came out, eventually, um, it, it comes out in an interview that George R. R. Martin told David Benioff and Dan Weiss lots of things, but that three things made them sit there and go, holy shit. And these were referred to as the three holy shit moments. <laughs> and so this is the first of three where they were told yeah. that Stannis was going to burn Shireen alive in the books. And so there are two more to come. <laughs> and I will tell you when we get them all. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. No, you're, you're absolutely right. It is the trolley problem. It's like, would you, you know, would you kill one person to potentially save hundreds of others um yeah fucking it. and also um just going back to kind of my intro points this I, I know i know daenerys riding a dragon this should have been the ending scene come on it's like they opened the episode with the you know the the camp being set fire to and the the horse mm. being burned and yeah that's a it's a perfect book ending of that yeah, um, I think it's another problem that they had a couple of weeks ago where you can end the episode either with Tyrion meeting Daenerys or Cersei getting imprisoned. I think it's just that yeah, yeah. maybe the the way that these storylines have all arrived at the same point, it maybe just feels like they couldn't pick and they just thought, oh, well, uh, we, we're just going to have to throw a dart at a board and see which one works best. Yeah, I mean, I I, I guess they, they obviously put a lot more budget into the uh, marine scenes. So oh, I'm God, yeah. I'm thinking may yeah. maybe they had a bit of a preference for that one. but <laughs> I would say as well that about understanding Stannis' decision, this is something that Game of Thrones has always excelled at, which is making you understand treachery and making mm. you understand why thousands of people might have to die in order for the... It's Again, it's something... It's a question I always come back to with Game of Thrones, which is that I think that the whole series asks the question, how far will you go in pursuit of your version of the greater good? How far yeah, will you push right. your values so that you can get what you want? And mm -hmm. is this not a brilliant example of somebody pushing so hard because they think that it's worth it for the greater good? Um, it's come through, like, with Tyrion... With, with in Blackwater, where he kills thousands of people in order to defend the city, and there are all sorts of examples of this. Rob Stark sending three thousand men to, or however thousand, however many thousand men to their deaths because it was worth it to capture Jamie Lannister, and mm -hmm. there are all sorts of decisions like this throughout the show. And analyzing them with that kind of question, I think it explains a lot about various characters' actions throughout the whole show. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the Stannis stuff is great this week. I think it's really emotionally affecting. People have softened on the decision over the years. I think, you know, as it's become clear that it maybe will be a book decision, that people are less bothered about it now. Um, well, at least, you know, uh, book readers with established headcanons are less bothered about it now. Um, people who'd never read yeah, the books aren't yeah. fussed because they're like, oh, Stannis, what are you doing, you idiot? Like, <laughs> but, 
But um, yeah, more on this as it develops. I can do without it in my leisure time. Fair enough. Yeah, it's an unpleasant question. But what great thing has ever been accomplished without killing or cruelty? It's easy to confuse what is with what ought to be, especially when what is has worked out in your favor. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the necessary conditions for greatness. That is greatness? That is a vital part of the great city of Miriam, which existed long before you or I, and will remain standing long after we have returned to the dirt. My father would have liked you. We finish up this week in Marine, where Daenerys opens the great games of the fighting season. Uh, one of the fighters reveals himself to be Jorah Mormont, and after successfully defeating the other combatants, Jorah then picks up a spear and uses it to kill a member of the Sons of the Harpy who had infiltrated the royal box in the stadium. The rest of the Sons of the Harpy then emerge from the crowd and make themselves known and attempt to assassinate Daenerys. And Daenerys, along with her council, are forced into the middle of the stadium and find themselves locked in on all sides. Suddenly, though, Drogon appears and returns to the city to rescue Daenerys. Uh, his dragon fire buys enough time for Daenerys to mount him, and she rides him for the very first time, up and out of the stadium and away to safety. Meanwhile, Tyrion, Dario, Jorah, and Missandei can only watch as she flies away from the city. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Daenerys. Um, love you too. This is great. I love this. I don't. I don't love it as much as the Stannis stuff, but the Stannis stuff is really high on my list of favorite Game of Thrones things, and. This is a pretty close second for like one of the better moments of the season, I think, so far. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's really good. Um, I I'll, I'll get it out of the way. I may as well just say that I still did find it a little bit hard to a little bit hard to take this in, given what we had just seen in the north. But yeah, I thought it was great. I thought you know Jorah had one of his best moments in the whole show when he throws a spear at, sort of in the direction of Daenerys and you're thinking oh shit he's, he's actually done it but then you you didn't see that son of the harpy behind it's really clever yeah yeah and and also just um i mean the whole battle scene was great um farewell his Solarak. we hardly knew ye yeah wasn't the secret leader after all dario Dario's yeah. wrong twice in this episode. <laughs> He's wrong oh, yeah. about the small guy winning. He's wrong about the suspicion that his Zalorak might have been behind the Sons of the Harpy. <laughs> we can put that theory to bed. That was a fan theory as well, that his Zalorak was the um, the head of the Sons of the Harpy. Um, they've definitely put that to bed now. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, we have to seen Stannis sacrificing his daughter, so maybe. Uh, true, yeah, uh, you know. very true. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think th- the only possible complaint I have is that it, it went on almost a little bit too long where it felt like, yeah, Drogon's going to show up. I know Drogon's going to show up. Even if you haven't told me this explicitly, you know, you're stuck in the middle of this fighting pit with no way out, seemingly, and it is kind of that... Hands on hips, what's going to happen next? And then, you know, obviously Drogon will show off. And yeah, uh, Daenerys riding Drogon is... It's a big moment in the show, I suppose, but... But I did like the the scene overall. I thought it was well done. Yeah, I think it's maybe one of those where, like... I do find it interesting that Shireen isn't the ending. Um, Mm. But I don't know if it's a test of how the audience can emotionally cope with more Game of Thrones afterwards. And so they give you this big 15-minute set piece where, like, they 
kind yeah. of take you away for a little while and give you a little bit of a palate cleanser. Get some mm-hmm. get some fighting and sword action and some dragon action, why don't you? Um, the thing that I like most about this scene, beyond the emotional, um, amazing emotional beats with Jorah and Daenerys, like Daenerys welcoming Jorah back into her service, Drogon returning to rescue Daenerys, uh, all of that. I think that the rather enlightening and interesting conversation between Daenerys, Hisdar, and Tyrion, where they all talk about their own opinions about depictions and displays of barbarism. And again, this idea about Daenerys, where she's sort of saying, like... um, Something about returning Marine, Marine returning to the dirt, and it's like, would you do something like this and she's like it, it, it will have happened for it. and she's dead Daenerys is sort of saying it ha- if it, you know if, if it puts me on top then it will have happened for a good reason of course and yeah. there's all of these really and then um, Tyrion just sort of saying like my father would have liked you and little little grace notes in this massive scene where these three characters feel like it, finally these three characters feel like they understand each other a little bit better only for one of them to snuff it um just yeah. before the end i think it's a great conversation um and it's i just find it so interesting that daenerys talks so calmly about basically reducing a city to dust while grimacing and feeling quite nauseated about a guy's head being chopped off mm-hmm. and i just think it's it shows both sides of daenerys at this point in this way where like she has very she has very liberal perspectives but she has very authoritarian tendencies and she likes absolutely to, yeah she likes to yeah. achieve these liberal tendencies with or slightly authoritarian methods and i find it's this interesting contradiction in her which i've always loved and we've seen lots of examples of so far this season and it's just a nice way to bring that to a close where his dart throughout the whole season has been trying to make Daenerys understand that she may have to bend in order to develop as a ruler. And I think in this episode, she kind of does bend when she claps and she listens. Yeah, yeah. And Daenerys, you know, for all Daenerys' faults, she's, she is someone who listens when somebody tells her. She is. She isn't yeah. so pig-headed that she doesn't listen. And I think when she, when somebody can penetrate that exterior, and when somebody can make her see and make her understand, I think that she really, she she gets it. And having people like Tyrion around, and having oh, I mean he's dead now, but having someone like Hisdar around, I think it's it's just been it's been valuable for Daenerys this season. I think Daenerys has learnt a lot this season. And her clapping at the start of the games is a, a good, emotionally, I think, it, it's a good culmination for Daenerys this season. And then you get the extra beat, the, this sort of amazing epilogue of Drogon returning to the story to come and, to come and rescue her. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like with the clap, you're thinking, oh, wow, she's, maybe she's finally getting used to being leader of Marine. And they're obviously flying off with Drogon. It's like, nope, she's out of here. Mm. We're done. I take it is Marine done with? Uh, no, no, okay. it isn't. Oh yeah, because well, there's four of them still there. Yes, but... they're still chatting. This help us. Could you not have just taken us <laughs> with you? Like you yeah, have a big dragon. <laughs> we'll come back for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no man left behind. 
No hesitation. <laughs> no surrender. No, no man left behind. But where do you think it goes from here with Daenerys? Do you think she's just been flown out of the stadium or do you think she's been flown out of Marine? I think she's probably just been flown out of the stadium. But because I... Like, if she was being flown out of Marine, I don't know where she'd actually go. Hmm. But, hmm, I, I suppose with the others, I feel like they'll just flee through a back door and then it'll be a case of, well, now what? Um, yeah. But, yeah, I feel like she's probably still in the city, but in in hiding of some sort. And they now they've got to strategize an exit plan. Hmm. Okay, cool. Um, I did just want to mention as well that the slow panning shot that closes the episode is great. That's some awesome blocking right there, David Nutter. Yeah, that's some great blocking. That's a that's an amazing little shot where you get Daenerys swooping and flying away, and then you get there. There's the guys. There's the crew. Dario, Missande, Tyrion, Jorah. They're, they're all back. You know, like Jorah's back in with Dario. We're gonna we're gonna have uh, more shots probably of. Uh, Dario coming out of Daenerys' bedchamber at eight in the morning while Dene- while Jorah goes in for his morning consultation and uh, more awkward glances between the two of them as Dario's like, huh, I sleep with Daenerys and you just have to complain. <laughs> um, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, it, with Jorah, it's very much a case of, well, if this doesn't get me back in the fucking council, nothing will. <laughs> yeah, there were some people at the time as well, just to sort of explain a little bit, or at least my interpretation of it, Daenerys holding Jorah's hand while he's infected mm. with grayscale. Obviously, she doesn't know oh, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So basically, a lot of people were like, "Oh my god, has Jorah infected Daenerys with grayscale?" If Daenerys doesn't touch the grayscale, she's fine. I, th- I, th- right. I think that's okay. the explanation, okay. which is that the grayscale has to touch you in order for you to be infected with grayscale. Because this is, I think, this is established with Shireen as well where she presses the doll to her face as a child and that's where it starts mm. but I think okay. somebody with grayscale touching you doesn't give you the disease it's that if the if the symptomatic area makes contact with your skin then that's how you get it and so Jorah was careful to make sure that Daenerys didn't grab onto his wrist it was just his hand that, <laughs> that she grabbed onto and plus, it was only one wrist, if I remember correctly. Just on his left, yeah. So his left. So I might have to go back and see which hand it was. But <laughs> Well, in the editing, he reaches out with his right hand and it ends up being his left or vice versa. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, then. I think that brings us to the end of the episode. So, mm-hmm. Lizzie, I want, I want your line of the episode, your favourite line. It's a long one and it's multiple lines. But, yeah, cool. Um, I'm going to go with one from Stannis, who says, Sometimes a person must choose. Sometimes the world forces his hand. If a man knows what he is and remains true to himself, the choice is no choice at all. He must fulfil his destiny and become who he's meant to be, however much he may hate it. Yeah, I think that's uh, a pretty good summation of what happens to him in the episode as well. So, yeah, entirely Very much so. Uh, who's your yeah. loser this week? Curious to see where you think the the blame lies for Shireen's death. Yeah, and well, it's because of that I can't really bring myself to name Stannis. It was actually quite an easy choice, as much as he's not a big part of the episode. It's Merrin Trent. I was curious to see if you were going to name Stannis or Melisandre as your loser of the week this week, but I think because they're both equally culpable, it's hard to just pick one. So you may as well choose option C 
and go for for Merrin Trant. <laughs> exactly, and I think there's also that whole thing I've just mentioned earlier about how you can sort of see it from Stannis's point of view, whereas with Merrin Trant, yeah, you're just a creep. Like you can't you can't sort of justify that. It's just no. He's a creep. He's a weirdo. What the hell's he doing there? Um, he doesn't belong there. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Um, <laughs> so who, who's your winner? Who's your winner this week? Uh, my winner of the week is Jorah Mormont. Yeah. A good couple of weeks yeah. for Jorah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Back in Daenerys' service. Back where he belongs. In, in an episode where very few people win. I think he's, you know, he's one of the few heroes of this episode. Yeah. All right, then, next week we have the season five finale, which is entitled Mother's Mercy. And after that, we will have our interview with Gretchen Felker Martin out on November the 2nd. And after that, as normal, we'll do our season five awards show. And then that'll be it for season five. And we'll be moving swiftly on to season six. Um, Thank you very much for listening. And tune in next week. (laughs) 